right? Like, what is going on? We, we shouldn't have cars that run on nuclear power. You don't ever need to fill, refill it for like 10 years or something like that. That should be normal. The money is the you know, sort of way in which a lot of this rent seeking happens. And unfortunately, it's taken over such a large part of the economy that we're actively going backwards in civilization. The Western countries actually want dictators and not democratically elected people. Really, like if you want economic freedom, you, you gotta have self. Like, This podcast is entertainment, not financial tax or legal advice. Views expressed represent statements of the speaker in their individual capacity, do not represent the views of Unchained, and should not be considered investment advice. Speakers often have personal, family, or business connections to Unchained, which may include direct financial benefits. Please see our disclosure at unchained.com slash podcast. Jimmy, thanks so much for taking the time to sit down with us. Well, thanks for having me. It's uh, great to be at the Unchained offices, though we're not in the podcast studio. So It'll be, uh, it'll be the, my first time recording in here. I am, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. Well, it'll be my first time recording in here as well. <laughs> so this will be good. Um, I want to start out with Bitcoin derangement syndrome. What is that for people that may not know what it is? And what has been your experience with other people in the space that might get that? Yeah, uh, so it's, a, it's an interesting phenomenon. And uh, the, the basic phenomenon is this. You're, you're somebody in Bitcoin. And then at some point you turn, like it's kind of like a heel turn in wrestling, right? Like if you're the good guy and all of a sudden you turn bad or something like that. Um, and it happens on such a regular basis that we had to give it a name. And that's basically what we called it is Bitcoin derangement syndrome. And of course, uh, you know, that's been used in politics forever, you know, like, uh, you know, Obama derangement syndrome, Trump derangement syndrome, whatever. That, that, that's been going on forever. But Bitcoin derangement syndrome is very peculiar because it's people that were part of the Bitcoin ecosystem in some way, shape, or form, and fairly prominent, and then they do this heel turn towards altcoins in some way, shape, or form. So um, very early um, examples of this might be somebody like Vitalik Buter, right? That he was founder of Bitcoin Magazine, right? He literally founded the magazine. And then he, uh, you know, like, uh, maybe eight months later, he 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 starts an altcoin called Ethereum, says all kinds of stupid crap, and you know that, you know does this ICO and does everything that he was purportedly against, right? Like uh, bringing in Wall Street money and all this other stuff. Um, that's a that's a very early example, but we we've seen this consistently throughout, and the, the, uh, and like it's it's an interesting question to think about why this happens. And uh, my friend Tone Bays uh, pointed out to me, I think back in like 2017, 2018, and he's been in the space since about 2013 as well. And he was pointing out that almost everybody that is non-technical ends up going towards altcoin. Now, we didn't have the word Bitcoin derangement syndrome at the time, but that's essentially what it was. It was all of these people that were non-technical and early ended up leaving uh, and doing some other, you know, uh, scamming thing. Um, and that that was for me like, oh, yeah, there is something to that. And, uh, and yeah, I mean, we could talk more about why, but that, that generally tends to happen to non-technical people 
uh, although it happens to technical people as well. <laughs> yeah, is that the and so is you being technical? Is that the reason that you think you've been able to avoid it? Uh, I mean, that's part of it. I mean, there are plenty of technical people that have uh, Bitcoin derangement syndrome and have gone off to something else, uh, and that that that's certainly been the case. Um, but I think uh, for non-technical people, um, the the hubris comes in in the sense that like you you start to think that you're the reason that Bitcoin was successful, right? So classic example, Roger Dick, right? He was called Bitcoin Jesus for a long time because he was so adamant about promoting Bitcoin to people. Uh, and specifically, he would promote it in a way that was about transactions, right? Um, I remember someone telling me like he, they were having dinner with uh, Roger Bear and like he he was asking the server about, hey, do you guys take Bitcoin, blah, blah, blah. Like that that's the level of evangelism that he had. Uh, and at a certain point, he he decided that he was the reason why Bitcoin was successful. And he felt that it, if uh, you know he went towards Bitcoin Cash, then that would mean that Bitcoin Cash would be successful because really it's a it's a form of hubris thinking that you're the reason. And you know, that there's a, a, a an interesting guy on Twitter that you might want to follow, Brian Scholes, and it, it, for a while his tagline was "Bitcoin is not about you," right? And this this is the derangement syndrome that a lot of people get into: is okay, I'm the reason that this is successful, and you see this almost always with VCs because for them this is the mentality that they enter almost any deal with is. I'm the reason you're going to be successful, and I and in a few, in the deal world, that's totally true, right? Like if you if you get uh, you know a Sequoia or an Andreessen Horowitz to back your company, you have a huge advantage over everybody else, and this is sort of like the mentality that a lot of them have. Uh, but Bitcoin's not like that. It's money, and uh, you know the better qualities of money win. Uh, so when you, when you get the Mark Cubans and Raul Powell's of the world that are like, hey, you know what, like, yeah, the people in Ethereum are nicer. I'm done with Bitcoin. And they, they think that they're able to, uh, you know, determine the success of Bitcoin versus altcoins. Like th this is where the derangement syndrome really sort of like takes hold. And unfortunately, a lot of the money in the fiat economy is controlled by, you know, hedge fund managers, investment bankers, VCs, people like that, who are used to being kingmakers. And, uh, you know, for them, when it doesn't work, they, they get Bitcoin derangement syndrome. They think, oh, you know what, I'm going to go back Solana or XRP or, you know, this other thing, and uh, they're going to win because I'm going to back them. They, they think it's some sort of like democracy or a vote or something or an oligarchy of some kind. And it's not. It's 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 Bitcoin, and it's it's better money, and better money, harder money wins just economically. That's uh, th those are some of the laws of economics. So, I would say it's not necessarily because I'm technical, although I think being technical definitely comes into it because you're you're humbled all the time as a technical person. Like try coding anything, and you're going to get lots and lots of bugs as well. But some of the most uh, humbling experiences trying to fix a bug uh, and you find out later that it was because you didn't fully understand what was going on. And then and then when you fix it, you're like, oh, OK, I get it. So there, there's like a humbling aspect to that. But there, there's also this economic aspect and uh, a lot of um, sort of like maybe more 
progressive uh, technical people tend to like sort of go off uh, on that that side. There, there are a lot of people that knew about Bitcoin in like 2011 that were technical enough to understand it. They didn't believe in the economic model because they didn't understand it. So uh, for the Bitcoiners that stay and don't get the range, I, I think they have generally a very good economic idea of what's going on. And uh, and that is uh, that is a difficult thing uh, to both have that humility and that uh, economic knowledge to really understand everything um, at, or at, at least those aspects of Bitcoin. And if you have that, then there is a very good chance you won't get the range. Uh, but for everybody else, uh, you know, I mean, these are these are some, you know, pit traps that a lot of people fall into and then. You know, I mean, I feel terrible for them because many of them like are like sort of permanently drained. It's it's not yeah. something I would uh, wish on my worst enemy. Yeah, it seems like the Bitcoin community you learn to to kill your heroes at the time. Unfortunately, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, there's a lot of people that have gone down that route. Um, yeah, I, and you gotta you gotta kind of stay humble, right? Yeah. Stacks that, um, and you know, both both aspects are you know sort of talking about. Uh, sort of keeping your own pride in check, and it's it's not it's really not about you. And then the other aspect is you got to learn the economics. This is saving technology stack, right? Yeah. Like, and that that that's how the whole thing works. And you know, whatever weird economic theories that you have, they get broken once uh, if it's not correct. Uh, you know, once you come into Bitcoin, and it's a uh, it's a sad reality. But a lot of people just don't want to understand the economics, uh, partly due to pride. So, you know, the worst Bitcoin deranged people are typically the people that have the wrong uh, economic values and have a lot of pride, which, you know, honestly are a lot of VCs, <laughs> a lot of uh, fiat central bankers and people like that. So, yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you've been in Bitcoin for, for so long. Has Bitcoin adoption or like even price specifically, has it happened faster or, or slower than you expected over time? It's hard to say. I mean, uh, there, there are various points at which I thought it would be faster and various points at which I thought it would be slower. So, I mean, I think it's evened out over time, basically. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I mean, my, my outlook now is it's, it's still going to take like another generation, like 10, 20 years before, you know, you, you really get like that true ramp up but that 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 ramp up is really about getting people to uh understand bitcoin at a deep level uh, for a long time i think uh, as a community we were sort of under the impression that if we can just get people to you know hold a little bitcoin or use bitcoin in a transaction or something that that would automatically get them all to understand it and I think over the years, what I f uh, found out is that, no, that, that's not how adoption works. So the real way adoption works is through grinding and hard work. It takes years for most people to understand Bitcoin. And we have to recognize that fact and you know, not let all of these marketers uh, think that, oh, you know what? It's, a, it's like an Apple computer or something, right? Like you try it and you, you adopt it and that's it. No, that, that's not how it works. You, you have to have a deep economic understanding. You have to, uh, you know, kind of stay humble about that fact and not be like, you know, I just came into Bitcoin and here to fix it. Um, and that, that, that takes a while. Uh, and, you know, my, my view, I guess, on that has, uh, has changed because, you know, early on, I, I was all about, hey, just get people to understand that you could 
transact halfway around the world without permission. I mean, that, that's still powerful, but that's not what brings people in or keeps people in. It's the, that's one aspect of it. Um, and, you know, as a lot of these coins have shown, you, you could do kind of, you know, something similar, centralized, of course, uh, with, with all coins. But that's not what makes Bitcoin special. What makes Bitcoin special is that there are economic laws and it's the best money uh, and based on those laws. And in this frontier moment, Jimmy is talking about this idea of good money. Throughout history, economic systems have converged on one best money. The concept of good money is often associated with certain characteristics or properties that make a form of money effective and reliable. Here are some basic principles that are commonly considered important for good money. Money should be able to withstand wear and tear over time. It should not degrade easily. It should be easy to carry and transfer from one person to another. It should be easily divisible into smaller units to facilitate transactions of different sizes. Each unit of money should be interchangeable with any other unit of the same value, ensuring uniformity. A good form of money should have a credible limited supply to prevent inflation and maintain its value over time. Last, money should be easily recognizable and hard to counterfeit. Traditionally, gold has been used as money due to the fact that it scores highly on many of these properties. However, gold had a fatal flaw. It tends to get centralized in one place. Large quantities of gold are very valuable and expensive to move around, which is why people choose to store it in a centralized location, eventually issuing paper receipts against it, which lowered the cost per ounce of storing it. But that came at a high cost. One could never know how that centralized location holding your gold didn't issue more receipts than the gold it held. Also, a foreign army could invade and take all of the gold, in which case the receipt that you held became worthless. In a less dramatic scenario, a hostile government can come to power and confiscate the gold, or part of it, due to its physical nature, leaving the jurisdiction of that government with one's gold becomes very tricky. Bitcoin solves both of these problems. Imagine a gold vault that you can see, walk into, pick up your gold bar, or just part of it, and instantly be able to verify that that gold is real. But there's a hidden force field. You can only carry your gold bar through the force field if you know a secret word. Once you utter the secret word, you can carry your gold out of the vault and it also becomes invisible to anyone else but you. That's Bitcoin. Bitcoin operates on a decentralized network, meaning it is not controlled by any central authority, such as a government or financial institution. This can provide security and resilience against manipulation, such as the ones governments did with gold. Transactions are recorded on a public ledger that is transparent and immutable. Bitcoin can be sent and received anywhere in the world 24-7 without the need for middlemen like banks. Bitcoin transactions are censorship resistant, meaning that no single entity can easily prevent or control the movement of Bitcoin. If a hostile government were to take power, there's nothing that could stop someone from giving access to their Bitcoin to someone else in another jurisdiction, thus saving the value. With Bitcoin, you can walk through an airport without carrying anything 
accept a 12-word sentence in your head and move billions of dollars worth of value from country to country. A lot of people refuse to see the economic laws because they're not taught in school. Where we've been deceived for a very long time on fiat money, thinking that inflation is normal, unemployment is normal, all of these things are normal, when in fact historically they're not. No, and uh, and that that's that's what we need to learn. It's uh, and it's going to take a lot. Yeah, in the periods of time where you thought Bitcoin adoption was happening faster than you expected, and then the periods where Bitcoin adoption was happening slower, do you think that's because of the extreme cycles? Like, did you expect the extreme cycles or? What do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I've seen a lot of cycles yeah. over time, uh, like 2011, 2013, 2013 again, 2017, 2020, right? Like every, every cycle sort of has its own thing. I think earlier on, I thought it would go faster because, you know, like I'm a human being and almost every human being sort of projects linearly. So it's like, oh, okay, well, if it happened this fast, then let's project linearly. That means it would be 100,000 by you know, 2015, something like that. And of course, that doesn't happen. Uh, and you have to sort of adjust your uh, expectations accordingly. But that, this, this is how a lot of this stuff works, is uh, you, know, you, you go through some, uh, some bear markets, some bull markets, and uh, you know, you, you you linearly project a little bit. Um, I mean, like STF, for example, was popular for a long time. And a lot of people are like, yeah, you know, this is kind of keeping up. And then, you know, we realized like the model didn't predict what it said it would. So at, at that point, it was like, OK, well, we should throw this model away. And let's let's look for another way to analyze this and yeah. figure out what's going on. Um, and that, that's, you know, that's just kind of what you have to do. Uh, and, you know, adoption, I think, is it's this very tricky thing. And I, I don't think we have equations for that stuff. It's, uh, and, you know, if, if they're there, it's, uh, it's deeply buried. And it's, it's not something that we've discovered yet. Yeah. Uh, and it's going to take some time. Yeah, trying to predict Bitcoin adoption is almost like trying to predict how to centrally control a monetary policy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that, that's, uh, you know, money has been sort of dictated to be adopted uh, in many countries for a long time. This, yeah. th this is a free market money, and it's, uh, it's going to take some time to figure out, like, we're, it, it, we, we, we don't know much about this stuff. And sadly, like, Economists study weird, you know, Keynesian justifications of government spending rather than stuff like this, which actually would be useful. Figure out, okay, like how does adoption happen, and what's what's a good model, right? Like to figure this out, because like all 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 of the metrics that we have for that stuff is like in, insanely basic, and we don't we don't have a deep understanding of of how any of that works. And, and sadly, like, uh, you know, the money has been going towards Keynesian, ridiculous, stupid stuff rather than, you know, maybe possibly productive stuff by, uh, again, studying Austrian economics and seeing, like, how, how can we figure things out through first principles? And, um, you know, is there any way to quantify this? Because yeah. to this day, economics still doesn't have its meter. Um, this is what uh, you know. Safety says all the time is we we don't have the meter. Everything is just changing. Yeah. Uh, Bitcoin is perhaps the closest thing that we've had, um, and maybe that's a direction which we can, you know, start to analyze economics. But I mean, like, just no, no one's done the work basically. Yeah. 
I'm curious, are there still people like, so you've been involved with Bitcoin for, for so long, yeah. arguably like people would look, look at that and be like, he's obviously been right about this. Are there still people in your life that think you're like crazy or you're wrong? <laughs> uh, I, I'm sure there are, but they, I don't, I don't think they'd be so bold as to tell it to my face. So, uh, I, yeah, I, I mean, I, I'm very clear about what I believe, uh, in general, not, not just about Bitcoin, but a lot of things. I mean, a lot of people know, for example, that I'm a Christian, right? Like that's, that's something that I, that those are the values that I try to have. And, not trying to hide anything, and uh, and I'm sure people do think I'm crazy, right? Like I'm, I I look into conspiracy theories all the time, and you know, I'm like, okay, well, you know, I I have questions about this. It's and I I'm very much um, questioning conventional wisdom on almost everything. So I'm sure people think I'm crazy about a lot of things, and that's okay. Uh, I I'm. I think I had the kind of personality to sort of challenge people on a lot of that stuff. And if they want to engage with me, that's great. And I, I would love to engage with people on any of the things that I believe. And, you know, I'm, I'm open to changing my mind on a lot of this stuff, but you better come with, with some good arguments because I'm not going to be bullied with trust the experts or this is what everyone else believes. You just sound crazy because... You know, like that, that those aren't good arguments. You know, I, need, I need first principles arguments. I need, you know, like go from, uh, you know, here, here's the truth and, you know, like logical deduction and stuff like that. You better come with that. And, uh, and that's, that's where, you know, like my mind is, that's, that's how I think. And I think to a large degree that that's how you get a prosperous society is more individuals that are thinking from first principles. So, I mean, I'm, I'm sure a lot of people think I'm crazy, and that's okay. Yeah. yeah, I mean, to me, it just shows that you're actually capable of thinking for yourself, where in today's world, a lot of people don't really think for themselves. Yeah, and we're, we're not incentivized to, right? Like, we're, you're, you're punished for thinking for yourself, especially like, like the large corporations and stuff. I mean, I wrote about this in my blog, uh, Yeah, Ruins Everything, but there's a, there's a whole section on companies and how they've sort of replaced communities for most people. And uh, the way companies are, they're extremely centralized, right? Like if you violate some HR policy, you're going to get fired. And uh, you're, you're encouraged to not think for yourself, but to do what they ask. And uh, they're, they're much more about compliance than creativity. And the thing about a decentralized system, uh, you know, a normal community like from, say, a couple hundred years ago, is that you're, you're able to... Uh, provide value in ways that other people don't expect. That, that creativity, that um, ability to think for yourself is an essential part of living in a decentralized system. That, that, that's how you figure out, okay, a lot of people need this. If I make this, I think people will buy it, right? Like th this is the task of entrepreneurship. This is how you build civilization. But in sort of the fiat world that we live in, that's not incentivized at all. They're, they're much more concerned with compliance and getting your support and things like that because we, we have this sort of like uh, consent and compliance system that, uh, that encourages the sort of going along for the sake of getting along. And that's, uh, that discourages thinking for yourself. Yeah. How do you think that like, you know, violating or doing something that the corporation disagrees with. How do you think that that will change under a Bitcoin standard? Like, yeah. Uh, so I, I wrote about this in the book, but uh, I, I think a lot of corporations are way too big, 
right? Yeah. Um, and the the scale at which some of these things operate, it's enormous and it's inefficient. And um, you know, I point out a lot of uh, a lot of disadvantages of being big. Uh, the the one thing that you do get for being big is um, is scale. And that, that and certainly that's true like, with a lot of stuff. You if you can produce at a lower per unit cost, you you have some margin there. But the big advantage of uh, of a largely scaled organization in in a fiat economy is that you get access to loans. You get access to loans that smaller companies don't get. Why? Because you're bigger, uh, and they 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 can loan you way more money, and you know have a single point of risk, which they like because then you you get a bailout or something like that. It's a lot easier to sort of manipulate if you have a hundred loans and they all, you know, like 50% of them go bad, you're, you're going to lose 50% of your money. But if you have one large loan, well, now you could go lobby government and, and get bailed out and stuff like that. So those are the advantages, but the disadvantages are many. You, you can't pivot very fast. I mean, think about, you know, all the corporate death uh, stories that you hear about, like Kodak invented the digital camera. <laughs> And they ended up like dying because of the digital camera. They did, they they didn't want to pivot, right? Um, you know, Blockbuster. Uh, you know, they 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 didn't want to pivot to online stuff, and that 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 uh, you know they they got their lunch eaten by Netflix and so on. Uh, so scale, you know, scale means that you can't pivot very fast. You also don't know what most people are doing, so you get infected with red seekers. And if you don't believe me, just talk to any management consultant, right? Like. Talk to any of them and ask that, okay, how many of the employees at the companies that you're management consulting for are useless? Like you can eliminate them right now. And they'll say at least 50%. And like Elon Musk kind of proved it, right? Like he took over Twitter, fired 90%, yeah. and the site kept running just fine, right? Like what, what the heck were the 90% of people doing? What were why, what 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 did they do? I mean, they, they were rent seeking essentially. So you get all of this grift because when, when you're at a scale above Dunbar's number, and Dunbar's number is just sort of how many people's relationships that you can keep track of in your brain, right? And it's uh, it's theorized to be about 160. And that's sort of like the optimal village size because you know what everyone else is doing. Beyond that, it's very difficult to know what everyone else is doing. And there are some extraordinary people that can, but vast majority of people, you can keep track of about 160 relationships. Beyond that, you have no idea what, what people are doing. So of course, it's going to get extremely inefficient because there are going to be people that don't do anything, that collect the paycheck, that aren't providing any value. And you get you, gotta, you get this huge drain from rent seeking. Uh, they can't pivot. You get a lot of rent seeking. And, uh, and, and, you know, you, you get your uh, lunch eaten by new startups, right? Because they're, they're, they're able to do a lot, a lot of that. But in, in a, you know, fiat money environment, they can just go buy out the smaller companies. They can, they can hire the best engineers and keep them on a bench, like doing stuff that they're way overqualified for. This is, this is what happened at Facebook and Google and stuff like that. So, I, like, in a sense, the layoffs are great. Great thing because all of that talent is now available for other uh, companies to uh, to use. I mean, if you know the state of IT in almost every industry, it is abysmal. Why? Because Google, Facebook, Netflix, Microsoft, Amazon—they they hoarded all, of them. Yeah. and so uh, you know 
and with newly printed money, right? Paying them, paying them bigger salaries or whatever. This is why none of the other infrastructure has like gotten better. So you you get you get this weird dynamic where uh, large corporations have uh, have taken over, and it's completely unnatural. Like the the natural size of a company, I think, is around Dunbar's number, and you you're supposed to have smaller mom and pop shops. Instead, you get you know Amazon's and Walmart's, uh, you know, in every uh, uh, city uh, like uh, around the world, basically. So. You know, uh, the, the scale problem is really a result of fiat money. Yeah. Let's take a quick moment to talk about the Unchained IRA. With the Bitcoin price moving above 40000 the Unchained IRA is breaking records this month. With a Roth Bitcoin IRA, you don't pay capital gains on the appreciation of Bitcoin. Unchained offers a solution. They make it simple for you to set up a Bitcoin IRA while keeping control of your Bitcoin keys. Use code FRONTIER for $100 off and schedule your free consultation today at unchained.com slash IRA. Now back to the conversation. I wonder how much more productive the world would be if, if we we're actually able to eliminate all of those rent seekers and, and middlemen, whether it's cutting, you know, 50% of the people that aren't, you know, producing value or 90%. I wonder, like, you know, those people moving elsewhere, would it be it's like a 2x or a 10x in, in productivity? Or? I, I, I theorized uh, in a tweet recently that like it, we would have probably like 10 hour work weeks yeah. if we wanted to, right? Like that because there, there, but there are so many rent seekers and I, I, I suspect it's way over 50% of the economy is rent seeking. Yeah. You know, I, if you're a government bureaucrat, you're definitely rent seeking. If you're in the banking industry, you're rent seeking. If you're and any sort of like administrative thing in like uh, like colleges, for example, you look at the graph of professors to administrators uh, since 1971. Professors going up very very slowly. Administrators uh, like exploded since 1971. Similar thing with hospital doctors and nurse practitioners and people like that versus administrators. With huge explosion of administrators. You know, you look at the military, like soldiers versus administrators, huge explosion of administrators. And so, like, were, were they that much, like, were all these institutions that much worse before all these administrators came in? Probably not. I would argue that actually all of those things have gotten worse, significantly worse as a result of these administrators. So you take all of that away and think about how cheap it was, cheap those things were pre-1971, and you figure out, okay, like, all of these people have been sucking, you know, blood up from the economy, and uh, they they're making everything worse. So, uh, you know, I, I I suspect it's way over fifty percent, uh, and you know, everyone would be able to afford a lot more, uh, it, you know, especially in terms of like housing and things like that, which are extremely expensive right now. Had we uh, you know, had sound money and uh, didn't have all this rent seeking going up all over the place. Because, you know, I mean, these, these people are like sucking blood from the economy. And uh, unfortunately, they're, they're, the, the few productive people are, you know, getting sucked dry. And honestly, the U.S. Uh, actually has probably more as a percentage of the workforce, like rent seekers and an economy like Malaysia or somewhere where they're actually manufacturing stuff mm -hmm. as well. Um, thankfully, we're getting higher rates, which means that like more rationality comes into the economy. Um, 
And, you know, what, what, one of the things that I've been saying is, you know, the UPS uh, labor settlement, right? Like yeah. they, they, uh, they said that the U UPS uh, truck drivers will be getting, I think, after all the benefits and stuff, like 170K a year. Yeah. And I was like, you know, they deserve every penny. They deserve it because they're actually from <laughs> like the, the HR person for diversity, equity, and inclusion from Twitter. They they don't even deserve five thousand dollars a year, right? Like they they they're sucking blood from the economy. The investment banker that's doing hundred x leverage, they don't deserve hundreds of millions of dollars. None of these people that are rent seeking deserve a penny. But the UPS truck driver, you're complaining about the fact that that that, that guy's making hundred seventy thousand dollars a year. I think that guy deserves it, right? Like, they, and this is the rationality that's returning to the market as rates rise is because you know has uh, all of these loans that are available to you, and that's that's a good thing. Uh, the rent seeking is being at least whittled out a little bit. Um, now it's uh, it's going to take a while for it to all sort of like uh, go away through a Bitcoin standard, but I I expect you know a lot a, a huge portion of this rent seeking to just get eliminated uh, once we're on a Bitcoin standard because you need to operate that for profit. You can't just paper it over with uh, loans and like uh, you know work off of that for a while and sort of like bring consumption forward it's, uh, and not work on promises. Yeah, it's almost like in, in the rent sinking, there might be some people that are not just providing no value, but they're providing like negative value. Like yeah. they're destroying capital and destroying productivity for other people. Oh, right. significant capital for a lot of people. And, and this is the real sad thing is that uh, a lot of developing countries are being set up this way, which is really sad. Is that you know you get you get a lot of rent seeking, uh, and you you have corrupt governments, and th this is another aspect of fiat money that you know I tried to touch on in the sort of uh, second to last section of the book. So that the global monetary imperialism of the dollar means that a lot of these countries are uh, ruled by dictators that are more interested in rent seeking and using these uh, fiat uh, tools that they have access to, uh, usually through the IMF, World Bank, BIS, or what these three letter organizations to bring consumption forward. So they'll, they'll take on debt that's due over 20 years, embezzle a bunch of it, and uh, you know, uh, you know, maybe spend a little bit on roads or whatever. Uh, and th this, is, this is the sort of like rent-seeking uh, you know, regimes that uh, a lot of Western countries like because they'll they'll do exactly what the Western countries say, right? Um, I was talking to Alex Gladstein about his book Hidden Repression, and he's like, "Yeah, the the Western countries actually want dictators and not demo democratically elected people because they're way more compliant. <laughs> Centralization <laughs> makes things so much easier for everybody, uh, at, at least from their perspective, uh, but." Really, like if you want economic freedom, you you gotta have sound money, and the, the money the money is the you know sort of way in which a lot of this rent seeking happens, and unfortunately, it's taken over such a large part of the economy that we're actively going backwards in civil in civilization. And I, I point out in the book, for example, that you know, travel times from New York to London were faster in the '60s than now. That's Crazy. Yeah. It's you know, 60 years 
And we've actually gone backwards in terms of how you know, uh, quickly you can go from point A to point B. Uh, you know, dishwashers have gotten worse, right? Like 45 minutes to clean a full load in the 60s. Now it's three and a half hours. Like what the heck is going on? Should we be progressing? We had nuclear technology in the uh, 50s and 60s, right? Where, you know, you, you have um, submarines that operate off of nuclear power so they don't have to refuel for like 18 months. Yeah. We, we, where is that technology in our transport? Why don't we have that for our cars? Why do we need to fill up every week, right? Like, what is going on? We, we should have cars that run on nuclear power. You don't ever need to fill, refill it for like 10 years or something like that. In this frontier moment, Jimmy is talking about nuclear fusion. But what's exciting is how close this technology is to potentially becoming a daily reality. Scientists at the Lawrence Livermore National Lab in California on December 5th, 2022, for the first time ever, briefly achieved a net energy gain in a fusion experiment using advanced lasers. The scientists focused a laser on a target of fuel to fuse two light atoms into a denser one, releasing the energy. Kimberly Buttle, the director of Lawrence Livermore, told reporters at an energy department event that the science and technology hurdles mean commercialization is probably not five or six decades away, but sooner. With concerted effort and investment, a few decades of research on the underlying technologies could put us in a position to build a nuclear fusion power plant, Buttle said. Following this breakthrough, at the end of 2022, now as of December 21st, 2023, scientists claim to have successfully replicated this historic nuclear fusion breakthrough several times. Most recently, as of a few weeks ago, the report stated these results demonstrated NIF's ability to consistently produce fusion energy at multi-megajoule levels. NIF, short for National Ignition Facility, is the world's most precise and reproducible laser system. U.S. Secretary of Energy Jennifer Granham in a statement said, we have now the confidence that it's not only possible, but probable that fusion energy can be a reality. Investment in the global fusion industry has now reached a cumulative 6.2 billion, up from 4.8 billion just a year ago, according to the third annual Global Fusion Industry Report from the Fusion Industry Association. Today, more than ever, it sounds like nuclear fusion has the highest likelihood of becoming a viable technology. The commercialization of fusion energy promises a potential future with abundant and cheap energy. This revolution in energy production could lead to a significant reduction in the cost of generating power. As a result, the overall operational costs across various industries could decrease substantially. This shift would especially influence the pricing of common goods and services in terms of Bitcoin. In a free market that thrives on competition, these lowered costs would likely lead to businesses competing to offer lower prices, thereby 
benefiting consumers. The fusion energy breakthrough, therefore, doesn't just symbolize a leap in our scientific capabilities, it also foreshadows a transformative impact on the economy. As prices in terms of dollars may continue steadily increasing due to the Federal Reserve continuing to hit their CPI targets, but prices in terms of Bitcoin immutably scarce money may decrease substantially. It's important to note that this technology is not guaranteed to ever be commercially viable. We think that the experimentation with new technologies for reducing the price of energy, such as a small modular nuclear reactor, is crucial in order to deliver an increasingly higher quality of life for humans. That should be normal. <laughs> and we, we could have had that technology in the 70s or 80s probably, but instead we went down this you know, great society, warfare, welfare state, and all of the rent seekers have taken uh, all of these innovations away from us instead. And th this, this is the state of society where we're, we, we've peaked and we, we're, we've started to go backwards. And you know, I mean, uh, yeah, we, you have an iPhone, but really you've got a core, right? Like you, you have a technological uh, marvel in front of you. Yes, that's true. But you know, think about the stuff that you actually want to buy, like a house. It, it's now like eight times your income, right? It used to be like two or three. Like that, that tells you you're going backwards. And, and the thing is like, if you go even further back, people were able to build their own homes over a year, right? Like that's about a year, year's worth of labor. What, what the heck is that? It shouldn't, it shouldn't cost eight times, you know, eight years of income to build a house. The, 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 this is getting crazy. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that is quite wild. Well, thankfully, hopefully Bitcoin will fix this for us. Um, you've written, I think, five different Bitcoin books. Mm -hmm. Which one was your favorite writing? Well, I, I enjoyed writing all of them. Right. Uh, I, uh, programming Bitcoin was a little bit of a hard part. Um, I, I would say Thank God for Bitcoin was probably the most um, enjoyable uh, because... Well, first, it, it was like during the pandemic, I wasn't getting much adult conversation. So having my co-authors there, like yes. talking over Zoom every week, I uh, think, uh, you know, we, we still have very good memories of that and yes. thinking about, OK, like, uh, let's like go through it. Um, like towards the end there, I think we literally read through the book together and edited every paragraph. So, uh yeah, it, it's hard work, but it was productive work. It was creative work. It was satisfying work. And, uh, you know, I, I, I don't think I'm uh, exaggerating when I say that, like, we, we got pretty close uh, in that process. And, you know, I consider them good friends to this day. So um, I would say that that, that was probably, uh, you know, my favorite. But, I mean, the, the other books had, you know, two books that I collaborated on, the Little Bitcoin book, Bitcoin and the American Dream, had a similar dynamic, just over a shorter time frame, so. Nice. And recently, you, you, you traveled the world, right? And you yeah. spent some time writing while you're traveling, I guess? Yeah, yeah, so I, uh, I took my kids out of school yeah. uh, and uh, went on a world trip, visited 34 countries in 277 days, uh, <laughs> which was really fun. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, during the trip, while the kids were doing, like, you know, homework, uh, you know, they, we, they, we had them do some online classes as sort of like a substitute for school, I would be writing. 
and um, and you know out came uh, Fiat Roads everything and you know it's based on a lot of the stuff that I had written for Bitcoin Magazine but also a lot of the conversations I had with Bitcoin uh, people around the world and, uh, and you know, sort of giving a different perspective on what what's actually going on with Fiat money and yeah, um, yeah it's uh, available Fiat Roads everything on Amazon yeah, and so on and you can get a Side copy if you're in the U.S. by visiting fiatruins.com. Awesome. Yeah. Did you happen to visit Argentina? I did. Did you? What are your thoughts on Javier Millet and Argentina in general? Uh, yeah. So Argentina was very fun. Right. I got so I, I visited there. I think it was about a year ago. So I uh, I was there for about three weeks. Hmm. Spent a couple weeks in Buenos Aires and uh, one week in Ushuaia. So. Ushuaia is all the way at the bottom of Argentina. It's uh, it's the port where every cruise ship to Antarctica leaves from, and so oh. on. So, uh, yeah, beautiful place. Patagonia uh, is right next next to it, and everything. It's in the middle of Patagonia, I should say. Uh, really cool, interesting place. Um, I would encourage a lot of people to go visit if if you're interested in that sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, the country was really interesting because it, it was undergoing some form of hyperinflation. Um, like, it, it, I, I wouldn't say it's like changing every day or anything like that, but you, you could tell that, you know, prices were just sort of all over the place. So um, their biggest note at the time that I was there uh, was 1,000 pesos. And uh, the exchange rate on the day I arrived was 285 pesos per dollar. So their biggest bill was worth about three bucks. <laughs> and uh, and I, I needed, you know, cash to uh, go and transact or whatever. Um, and uh, there's there some Bitcoin for, uh, you know, local cash services that you can like text on WhatsApp and they'll come to your house. <laughs> they always came with a backpack. Oh gosh! Because they have to give you so many bills, right? <laughs> <laughs> you, you hold like you know a lot of bills like this big, yeah. and it's like three hundred bucks, right? <laughs> like, okay, that uh, and that that's that's kind of you know a little weird. But then you go to the shops, and they all have money counting machines, right? Because wow. the the bills are not worth that much. And I'm like, why don't they print bigger bills? And they explained to me, well. You know, when you print a bigger bill, it's kind of like doing a reverse stock split, right? Like uh, it's signaling to the market, okay, like you should stop panic. <laughs> so, like the governments under hyperinflation generally like will do everything they can to not print bigger bills. As if they do, it's like once a year, and you know, you, know, you don't want to get into a situation like Zimbabwe where they're printing bigger bills every week. That, that that's like. That that for them is an anathema. So you you end up with lots and lots of bills. Everyone in Argentina has huge pockets, similar in Lebanon too. A lot of them wear wear these like satchels, right? Where with like a kind of like a fanny pack, except it's across this way. And you know there there's like a big pocket here, and you shove all your currency in there, and so you could un unzip and you know do that because you don't want to be using a credit card. Uh, no, I don't. Well, think about it. You have to wait 45 days for the credit card to settle. Mm -hmm. Are you going to take 45 days of depreciation of your currency? Because the, the day I left was three weeks later, right? 289 on the day I came. The day I left, 
That was 320. Hmm. So like 10% at three weeks. That's yeah, that's all that. So, you know, if, if you think about 45 days, it's going to be probably like 20%, right? Like that's, yeah, I mean, if your margin is less than that, there's no way you pay credit card. So that, the, the, the situation there is pretty crazy. Uh, and you could tell prices were not adjusting quickly enough for certain workers. So you could get a cap in Buenos Aires for like 200 pesos, which is like 65 cents, right? Like, and that that was, you know, that those were the rates. <laughs> and it was totally like they, they hadn't changed, the government hadn't regulated the cabs to get more money. So, so the cabs kind of had to deal with it, right? Uh, public transportation, there's a, like, a, not not exactly a subway, but a train that you can take to, you know, go a little bit further outside. It was like 10 pesos, which is <laughs> with like a three cents or something yeah. like that, which is crazy. But that's that's why people were were paying because the government hadn't adjusted this yeah. stuff. And they, they don't want to, right? Like, because, it, again, it's kind of like showing that the government's panicking. Yeah. They're, they are, and they're not getting much revenue off of that anyway. So, you know, why bother collecting when you can just print more money, which, yeah. which is what they were doing. Um, so my thoughts on Javier Millet is that, like, the, the people in Argentina are sick of stuff like that. Um, uh, one of the saddest things I saw during my trip to Argentina is you would go to any tourist spot, and there's a bunch of people with wads of pesos. And they, they just say, cambio, cambio, which means I change, I change. Uh -huh. They are looking for a kind tourist to give them dollars for their pesos. Mm. That's what they want, because their pesos are depreciating so quickly, they need dollars. And they sit there for hours, hoping that a kind tourist will exchange their money. Think about how stupid that is, right? Like they, these are people wasting their time and effort, you know, doing something else that could be very productive. Instead, they're on a tourist place, you know, the same cambio cambio. Uh, this is, I think, what uh, Javier Millet, why Javier Millet is so uh, popular is that people are sick of it, right? Like they, they know they're being stolen from and they, they know that keeping things in uh, pesos is stupid and it's going to steal from them constantly. Like even, even other stuff, right? Like all imports are taxed at a significant rate. So if you want to get a MacBook, like, uh, you know, they're like, what, 800 to $1,000 in the U.S.? In Argentina, it's like $3,000. Oh, wow. Why? Well, there's somebody collecting tariffs, right? Like this yeah. is how the government uh, collects like, uh, you know, hard currency or something like that. This is what the people are sick of. They hate being stolen from. Yeah. So when somebody comes in and says, you know what, I'm gonna, I'm gonna insist on destroying the central bank, we'll dollarize the, you know, that, that's a popular policy. Why? Because now you don't have to suffer from inflation. Now you can have dollar bank accounts. And, you know, I mean, you're still suffering from U.S. dollar inflation, but at least you can keep up with that. And you can you can maybe start using credit cards and things like that and other loan instruments instead of everything going to the elite and, uh, you know, uh, and things like that. So I, I think he's popular for a reason. 
I, I like that he's popular because that means that the policies that he's standing for are what the Argentinians are finally realizing are good for the country. I'm skeptical about him until he starts acting, um, as I think everyone should be of politicians. Uh, but, you know, we'll see. Like it, uh, I have hopes that he'll do the right thing, but we don't know. Yeah. Yeah, I kind of feel the same way. I hope we'll do the right thing. But again, like we talked about killing your heroes, like he may not be, <laughs> may not be the right guy. I don't know. He might yeah. be an impossible situation. Yeah, well, if they dollarize and uh, and start promoting Bitcoin as like savings and stuff like that, I think I think they can go a long way. And you you've seen what's happened with Bukele in uh, in El Salvador. I mean, the, I've been there four times, and each time I go back, I'm like, wow, they they really improve this place. Uh, and and you, could, you can physically see it. You know, downtown San Salvador was like this ghetto. Yeah. Now it's like beautiful, you know, clean. There's a new library there. The church there is like, uh, you know, super clean and, uh, you know, uh, really nice. There was like a government building there where they held Miss Universe, you know, like just all kinds of stuff uh, is improving, right? And, uh, you know, they just announced like a new soccer stadium that they're going to have and stuff. Like they're, they're building, right? Like this, this is how you know that things are getting better. They're, they're putting money into actually creating things instead of, you know, rent-seeking bureaucrats and financial gains and things like that, which honestly happens way too much even in the Western world. So, um yeah, I, I think Millet, if he can sort of take that energy that from from his constituents and not get corrupted, like I, I think improvement in five years, like to you know uh, an amazing economy, is out of the question. Like that, that's they have a lot of natural resources. Uh, Argentinian beef is the best in the world. They they have amazing tourist spots. They 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 have, um, you know. Uh, a, a lot of different things that they can be producing. Um, I, I I think they can they can you know contribute to the global economy or even the economy within Argentina. It's it's just a matter of uh, of having a government that's not stealing from them. Yeah, definitely. Jimmy, I feel like I could talk to you for hours, so okay. I'm gonna ask you one last question. Um, how do you think, or what do you think will be like the next surprise in global Bitcoin adoption? Like, will I see another Michael Saylor or anything else that you can think of? I mean, it's hard to predict stuff like that because uh, obviously uh, it comes down to individuals and their values and uh, their dreams and you know how they see Bitcoin fitting in with that. I mean, Michael Saylor himself kind of came out of nowhere, but it turned out that he had been studying Bitcoin for a while and he understood that this was a way to protect not just his own wealth, but his company's wealth. And we're, we're seeing sort of these interesting things he's doing to uh, increase the Bitcoin balance sheet for himself. Um, I, I suspect that the next, next major thing will be companies that are sort of adopting Bitcoin as a standard, because, I mean, they're, they're all watching Michael Saylor and uh, MicroStrategy. They've actually beat Bitcoin in returns, um, and there's a there's a huge demand for his stock. So, other CFOs are going to look at that and say, "Okay, this may be a way to um, 
yeah, short circuit, like, uh, you know, ETFs taking forever or whatever, like we, we can, we can start doing that too. And, you know, Bitcoin becomes sort of like this monetary vortex where all new, newly printed money starts sucking into it because, you know, a lot of these companies are not that profitable, right? They, they subsist off loans and, uh, you know, bringing consumption forward and so on. And there, there will be more honest companies that are actually making profit that will be saying, you know what, if we put our profit in this, this will be better than doing some weird zero um, profit thing. Uh, and, you know, we, we, we're going to only invest in things that make sense from a Bitcoin perspective, right? If it beats the Bitcoin hurdle rate, which means that the idea is that those companies end up implementing are going to be much better than the ones that they implement now, which are honestly really stupid, right? Like giving away free stuff all the time and hoping that at some point you have enough ad Like that's been the business model for so many companies. It's incredibly stupid. Uh, and I think there's a lot more value that you can tap by creating stuff and I, I think that's what you're kind of forced to go down when you're uh, starting to get on a Bitcoin standard. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna say some other corporation starts buying Bitcoin, probably behind the scenes or something like that. Um, um, who knows if it's a tech company or some something else? But it'll have to be some sort of visionary CEO or somebody that really gets it. Yeah. Definitely feels like it's coming at some point. Mm -hmm. Jimmy, thanks so much for coming on and taking the time to do this. Well, thanks, Brett. Of course.